Hey, this is Damien Blankensop, and this is a Quantified Body Show. This is a show where we look at cutting-edge tools and tactics to improve our body's health, performance, and longevity. And we do this with a quantified perspective, always looking for data such as biomarkers for real evidence. So we avoid the trap of following anecdotal opinion and hoping for results. But we also don't wait for science to prove these tools without a doubt via gold standard double-blind studies, which can take a while. Instead, we try to find a middle ground on this show, looking for biomarkers and data that you can use to track and give you more confidence in results now. We have guests that range from academic researchers and experts in the biomarkers, the tools and the tactics, to real-life experimenters who have done their own biohacking experiments and tracked biomarkers to show their results. Today, we've got a perspective from academia and studies, and we're looking at ketosis as a tool again. This is something that we looked at for weight loss, diabetes, and heart disease with episode seven with Jimmy Moore. And we also looked at it more recently for therapeutic value against cancer for a potential tactic to reduce or protect ourselves against cancer risk with Thomas Seafried in episode 16. Today, we're digging deeper into the cancer topic. We're looking at how ketogenic or low-carb diets may contribute via mechanisms related to insulin and ketones to inhibit cancer growth. We'll also be looking at why only some types of cancers may benefit from these type of ketogenic treatments. And also we'll be looking at the PET scan, positron emission tomography, and how that can be used to screen for the appropriateness of this kind of therapy when used to combat or treat different types of cancers. Today's guest is Dr. Gene Fine. He's professor of clinical nuclear medicine at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He published a study in the Scientific Journal of Nutrition on 10 cancer patients treated with a low-carb diet in 2012. So we'll be talking about that. He's currently working on the use of low-carb combined with chemotherapy in animals. So kind of taking what he learned in the other study and looking at how this may be used for therapy with animal cases before moving on to potential human studies later on. This is all linked through his area of specialism, which is PET scans, positron emission tomography, where he has been identifying and monitoring cancers through the use of this type of scan, which we'll talk about in detail. We'll also touch on some of his studies looking at the impact of ketones in vivo on normal cells and malignant cells and how that differs compared to glucose. To get today's show notes and the MP3 download, the transcript, and all the links to everything we talk about in the show, go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episodes and pick this episode out of the list there. If you want to get all of those notes in your inbox every time an episode comes out, go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there, and you'll get that in automatic fashion. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Gene, thanks so much for joining us on the call today. Sure. Good to be here. To give a bit of background, we spoke to Dr. Seafried about his ideas and his work on uh, ketogenic diets, fasting, and cancer. And what I found was interesting about your work is you've dug into uh, different areas it, and you've like differentiated cancers. And so I uh, wanted to get up to speed on what you've been up to. And potentially also you've got some slightly different um, views on the whole thing. So first of all, I wanted to talk about what do you see as the mechanisms 
of effect behind if we're inducing ketosis to inhibit the cell growth of some cancers, how is that working from your perspective? There really are, are three linked mechanisms, I believe, that have the potential to inhibit cancer growth. And uh, two of them, well, actually all three of them, but one is that by reducing carbohydrates in the diet, and uh, we have to realize that most of the carbohydrates we consume are sugars and starches, which digest the sugars, about 90% of them, that if we strictly limit carbohydrate to very low values, we're inhibiting insulin secretion. And insulin alone is a stimulus to cancer growth. So if you inhibit insulin, you're reducing and one of the important stimuli to cancer growth through that alone. There, the insulin receptors on cancer cells will be inhibited, and, and so the growth signals will be inhibited. Is that differentiated? I mean, normal cells have, they have uptake of insulin, they respond to insulin also. Is it that the cancer cells respond to a greater degree, or what's the difference there, if there's any? No, not at all. In fact, uh, I think the concern would be that the cancer cells may respond to a lesser degree. However, the important thing is that um, as adults, we need some insulin. Without any insulin, we're type 1 diabetics. But we don't need much insulin at all. We need insulin when we're kids. Uh, Kids grow, they grow up when they have carbohydrate and protein and and, uh, insulin helps them grow. When you're an adult and you eat too much carbohydrates, it tends to make you grow sideways. So the insulin in an adult is really uh, excess insulin in an adult is not such a good thing. It contributes to obesity and to diabetes. Right. I guess we would throw in bodybuilders in there as well because they're always trying to stimulate insulin to stimulate greater muscle growth. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're extremely physically active, you probably can eat whatever you want. I'm not talking about recommendations for bodybuilders. I haven't studied that. I know that others have. I mean, Jeff Bullock and Steve Finney have looked at athletes, and um, and they recommend low carb diets for them as well. But the main group that I'm really talking about is the average person, who's unfortunately a little bit more sedentary than they used to be. And um, in this group, we really don't need very much insulin to go about our normal activities. And so carbohydrate restriction is perfectly safe. Right. So would you put protein in there as well? Because protein also can stimulate. Insulin. Yeah, that's a, that I think is an interesting and maybe more controversial area. Protein certainly can stimulate insulin. And the question about how much protein to consume in a diet is really uh, an important one, but an independent question which I think has not been answered. I mean, if you look in the literature, recommendations for protein in the diet are all over the page. They vary from 20 grams a day to 150 grams a day. So I don't know that I, I'm really in a good position to comment on that because it hasn't really been adequately studied by anyone, including us. Our own study, uh, we didn't limit protein. So we might have done better than we did if we had. But um, nonetheless, um, our human study did show that the patients that had the highest levels of ketosis were the ones who did the best in terms of stable disease or partial remission of their cancers. And those who had the lowest ketosis, uh, lowest levels of ketosis, had progressive disease. So you're talking about how insulin inhibition mechanism, are they basically opposite correlates? So when insulin goes down in response to uh, ketosis going up, is that basically the rough mechanism so that you could map those to each other? That's why with a low-carbohydrate diet, you get ketosis goes up and insulin goes down. 
Yes, I didn't actually clarify that. I was saying, yes, that's the general idea. The when I was uh, didn't quite complete the thought that there really are three mechanisms by which a, a very low carbohydrate diet could inhibit cancer growth, and one of them, as I say, is by reducing carbohydrate in the diet and reducing insulin secretion. Insulin by itself is a stimulus to cancer growth, but very low insulin would at least have the potential to slow that. So insulin by itself would slow the cancer growth. And there are two cellular mechanisms, so I count insulin twice, <laughs> to, uh, as why insulin would. But in addition, there are systemic effects in the whole body, and very low insulin causes mobilization of fat from fat cells. In fact, that's how you end up losing weight. And the fat gets broken down in the liver, and increased breakdown of fat in the liver leads to production of ketone bodies and ketosis. And ketosis independently, we've shown at least in metabolic studies in cell culture, that ketosis itself can cause inhibition of cancer cells. So it can inhibit cancer cells. It leaves normal cells alone. And as I say, we also showed that in our human study. Yes. Yes, thank you. So there's three mechanisms. Yeah. Well, two of them I consider to be insulin uh, because there are two different insulin pathways that could be inhibited. And the third mechanism is a systemic effect of low insulin causing ketosis uh, in the liver. Uh, increased fat mobilization causes ketosis in the liver, and ketosis circulates, the ketone bodies circulate in, in, in the body. Normal tissue is tolerated very well and can use ketone bodies as a fuel, but the cancer cells, at least that we've shown in vitro, uh, can be inhibited by them. Great. It's interesting to look at the mechanisms, just in case later on people discover different tactics for modifying insulin, for example. I mean, like there's drugs and stuff, or for introducing additional ketones or something. So we were talking just before the call about the study where you were actually looking at how ketones inhibit some of the cancer cells. Could you talk a bit about that? Because I know that there was some glucose and ketones involved, and it was interesting how, how it was done. Yeah, in, in cell culture studies, and we started this a few years ago, we studied three different normal cancer lines, uh, not normal cancer lines, normal tissue lines that were fibroblasts, which are normal connective tissues that we have in our body. And we also studied seven different cancer lines, five uh, colorectal cancer line variants and two breast cancer lines. And what we found was that all seven of the cancer lines, well, we grew all of the, uh, of the tissues for four days in the cell culture in glucose medium, and we saw how much they grew. But in parallel with that, we also grew the same cells in glucose medium, but with added ketone bodies. And as I mentioned before, ketone bodies are a nutrient for normal cells. So we didn't expect there to be any problems in the fibroblasts. And in fact, the fibroblasts continued to grow normally when we added another nutrient. However, all seven cancer lines um, showed growth inhibition. And they had differing degrees of growth inhibition when we added the ketone bodies. And we found that the degree of inhibition of the, cancer, uh, of the cancer lines was proportional to how much they overexpressed a particular protein called uncoupling protein 2, which actually reduces the efficiencies of, uh, which reduces the efficiency of a cell in producing ATP. So it turns out that the cancer cells were producing less ATP than they ordinarily would when we added ketone bodies. So the ketone bodies were metabolically inhibiting ATP production and uh, in proportion to their overexpression of this interesting protein. And uh, the degree of ATP inhibition was exactly proportional to the degree of growth inhibition, which makes a lot of sense that it requires ATP to grow. 
So that, that seemed to be that, uh, pretty good evidence that we had at that point that there could be metabolic inhibition of cancer cells by these ketone bodies. Yeah, that's interesting because, like you said, you're actually adding something. You didn't change anything. You got the same amount of glucose. So theoretically, like even if cancers couldn't process the ketone bodies very efficiently, they have the same amount of glucose there. So in theory, they could have been okay, but you've actually shown that somehow the ketone bodies are inhibiting that. Would it be fair to say like the, the cancer cells are trying? It's like they're taking in the glucose and the ketone and that they're trying to process that, but because of the inefficiency, they're not able to, you know, because it's kind of interesting that it's just got this inhibitory mechanism there. It's like they're trying to, but they're not very successful at it. Right, and one of the big questions is, of course, well, why are the cancers overexpressing the uncoupling protein too? And um, this has been observed, the cancers overexpress uncoupling protein too, for at least uh, 10 or 15 years. Um, there were studies in the early 2000s that I first saw that sort of, got me clued into the fact that, that they were doing this. And I was thinking, well, what could uncoupling protein to do to a cancer cell, and why would they do that? The general explanation that I've adopted is that cancer cells also overproduce what are called reactive oxygen species. And reactive oxygen species are chemically active molecules that are produced in all tissues, normal cells as well but they're higher in cancer cells than they are in normal cells. And the thing about reactive oxygen species is that they actually act as with a, sort of a two-edged sword. They're required for normal cell signaling. They're a signaling molecule that helps cells grow and develop and proliferate and so forth. However, they also are very chemically active and can cause mutations. And so and mutations are also somehow the lifeblood of cancer cells. Cancer cells become cancers on the basis of mutations. And in fact, they're sort of evolutionary masterpieces in that they continue to evolve because of mutations. If a particular cancer mutation kills a, a single cancer cell, well, that's fine. That cancer cell dies. But if another mutation that, that happens to be caused in another cancer cell makes that cancer cell even more aggressive, well, then the cancer becomes more aggressive. So reactive oxygen species, when overexpressed in cancer cells, actually provided a mechanism for continued uh, growth and continued development as an aggressive cancer. The problem, of course, is much too high reactive oxygen species will kill a cancer cell as they will kill any cell. In fact, it's very high re levels of reactive oxygen species that are caused by chemotherapy and are caused by radiation therapy. So there has to be a limit on how much reactive oxygen species a cancer cell can actually produce. And what I believe, and I can't say that I've proven this at all, is that the increased expression of uncoupling protein 2, uncoupling proteins, in fact, are believed to limit reactive oxygen species. So it makes sense to me, but without proof, that the reason, quote-unquote reason, for the increased production of uncoupling protein 2 is to provide a natural limit, a higher limit than in normal cells, but a limit on the amount of reactive oxygen species that the cancer cells produce. So that's my overall belief. UCP2 is there for a reason, but it happens, it just happens, that that reason, which is important for the cancer cell, may actually be exploitable in terms of diet because it also reduces the efficiency of production of ATP. I don't know if that exactly adds up, <laughs> but that's what I believe. Yeah, my understanding is, like, I'm just trying to kind of resummarize from what I understand and how it fits in. Mitochondria create reactive oxygen species and they tend to do that more with glucose fuel than ketone fuel. 
at a higher rate. And also when they get damaged, they tend to create more reactive oxygen species. So when they're not as efficient. Does that fit in with what you just said? Yes. Okay, okay, great. So somehow when it seems like when the ketone bodies are being are being used, though, in this scenario, it's potentially creating more reactive oxygen oxygen species through, via ketones because of the protein change there. I think that's not really clear. I don't believe the ketone bodies. Other people who have looked into this a little bit, I think, are somewhat ambiguous about it as well. I actually, I don't believe that ketone bodies cause increased reactive oxygen species, but I can't say that I, that I know that for certain. I do believe, from at least the mechanisms that we've explored, that ketone bodies provide a complementary way of, of inhibiting cancer growth metabolically. If they also produce increased reactive oxygen species and therefore contribute to higher levels of reactive oxygen species that are cell-killing, that would be interesting, but I, I don't have direct proof of that. I, I believe that's been suggested by, um, by others, uh, possibly uh, Doug Spitz, who's a radiation oncologist, and I, I don't know what Colin Champ, who also is a radiation oncologist, He's written about this, but I'm not sure he's described increased reactive oxygen species production through ketone bodies as possible. All right, so great. There's some mechanisms you've been looking at there. One of the things that's been interesting about your work is that you've been looking at the differences between different cancers in your studies uh, with PET scans, which is, of course, your, your background and your area. Could you talk a little bit about the PET scan and how you use it to assess a cancer? Yeah, sure. Most cancers, most aggressive cancers, I should say, end up becoming... Uh, first of all, they begin to outstrip their blood supply. Their blood supply becomes erratic, and instead of having blood vessels well supplying nutrients to the cancer cells, the cancer cells become relatively hypoxic. They don't usually have enough oxygen. And hypoxia will interfere with the ability of a cell to use the Krebs cycle as a, as a means of uh, developing energy. So most cancer cells actually depend on glycolysis, which is anaerobic glucose metabolism, in order to develop uh, their ATP. Now, because they're using so much glucose and they overexpress glucose transporters and glycolytic enzymes, because they're using so much glucose, if you inject a glucose-like tracer, if you're a radio tracer, whether it's uh, carbon-11 glucose or another one that we like to use in general nuclear medicine, fluorine-18 fluorodeoxyglucose. This is a glucose analog, and it gets taken up very avidly by cancer cells that are aggressive. These aggressive hypoxic cancer cells take up FDG very avidly. There's also something called the Warburg effect, which Otto Warburg, famous biochemist, demonstrated 100 years ago, that aggressive cancers, um, in fact, they may be hypoxic, but that even if you expose them to normal oxygen conditions, they still retain this glucose and glycolytic dependence. In any event, the result is the same, that aggressive cancers light up on a PET scan if you inject a patient with FDG, with fluorodeoxyglucose. And a PET scan is basically a nuclear medicine study. These radioactive tracers give off emissions which allow you to see where the radio tracer goes. So FDG distributes through the body Glucose is used by a lot of tissues, so you can also see the heart, you can see the brain, because these are often uh, glucose-utilizing structures. However, you don't expect to see FDG in locations where it shouldn't be, but if you have metastatic disease, which these 
kinds of hypoxic glucose-dependent cancers, FDG will go to those sites as well. And in fact, this one image can be used, a, a total body PET scan using FDG can be uh, thought of as a one-step metastatic workup because you can actually see the full distribution of cancer cells throughout the body. So is this the kind of the gold standard for assessing the severity of cancer? Could you give an, uh, us an idea of when you would use this kind of uh, scan? Yeah, everything in medicine really is very empiric. So if it works, it works. And certain cancers are particularly avid for this kind of tracer where they do become hypoxic glycolytic cancers, and it's turned out to be useful in management of cancers in one way or another. For example, in a solitary pulmonary nodules, and you're trying to determine if this is likely to be a cancer or not, or if it's a benign nodule. Benign nodules don't tend to take up glucose that, that avidly, but the malignant ones do. So an FDG scan can be very useful in a solitary, just a diagnosis of whether a lung nodule is in fact cancerous. But PET scans are useful in the management and decision-making processes of breast cancers, of, of uh, uterine cancers, Actually, a whole variety of lymphomas in particular are usually quite avid, and PET scans can be quite helpful. Um, esophageal cancers, gallbladder cancers, colorectal cancers, PET scans can be quite useful because they, they light up and they show you not only where the tumor is, but where the metastases are. And then, and so the other thing, I guess it would simply appear bigger if it's, if it's getting worse. So on your PET scan, if you did one in every three months of a cancer patient you and it was getting worse, you would see it getting bigger and potentially spreading to other areas of the body. Is that how it comes back? Yeah, very definitely. So you can see how it spreads. And, and nowadays, I should actually uh, say that most PET scan devices are now actually uh, two devices in one. They're PET and CT, uh, CAT scans. So you actually can get even better information because the CT scan is really a computerized three-dimensional X-ray. So you're actually able to see exactly where in the body. The PET scan doesn't have a, a roadmap of the anatomy. It's just where the fluorodeoxyglucose goes. But uh, the CT scan gives you the underlying anatomy, so you get the anatomy and as well as the functional derangement at the same time and in the same locations. So you can identify exactly where you're seeing it. And that's very helpful. I should actually mention that there are certain cancers that PET scans are not useful for. And uh, for example, pretty notoriously, Prostate cancer is an unusual cancer. It's unusual in a lot of ways. It, uh, actually, 80% of prostate cancers are rather slow-growing and indolent. And probably, for at least that reason, that may be one expression of the reason why they don't actually take up glucose that avidly. It's usually the aggressive that uh, take up FDG. But also some other cancers, such as uh, there are mucinous cancers that are filled with so much mucin that you loot out the effect of what you see on a PET scan. And um, so mucinous cancers of the colon and of the lung often don't take up much uh, fluorodeoxyglucose. Squamous cell carcinomas of the lung, of course, are very avid, but these mucinous ones are not. And uh, endocrine tumors, very functional, they're often not as glycolytic. They often operate on, on oxygen, and uh, they can have a normal Krebs cycle and uh, normal metabolism. So thyroid cancers, uh, unless they're extremely aggressive, uh, are often uh, are not. They're slow-growing, and they take up much less FDG. So PET scans with FDG are not as useful for certain kinds of cancers such as these. That's important because, tell me if this is oversimplifying, anything that doesn't show up on a PET scan, 
it would it be met less likely that any type of low carbohydrate diet or inhibition of insulin and upregulation of ketone is going to have an impact on it, as we've been talking before? Yes, sure. In fact, that's very interesting because, as mentioning prostate cancer before, prostate cancer actually uh, it's not even approved for PET scan use. I should mention uh, because I say eighty percent of prostate cancers don't take up FDG. But in fact, prostate cancer is also not associated with obesity. It's not associated with hyperinsulinemia. It's not associated with high glucose levels in the blood. In fact, interestingly, there's an inverse association of diabetes with prostate cancer. Patients with diabetes, it's a little bit odd to use the word because I'm not sure that it's it's accurate. It may not be cause and effect, but it's at least an association are so-called protected with diabetes against prostate cancer. Now, I certainly don't want to recommend getting type 2 diabetes to protect yourself against prostate cancer, but it just the point is that not all cancers would respond to a low-carb diet either. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with the mechanism of that, that particular kind of cancer. Right. The mechanism you described earlier was higher insulin would lead to more aggressive cancers, but in this case, you've described like diabetes too, you'd have higher insulin, but it's not having any impact. It's actually reducing you. You know, the likeliness of getting prostate cancer, is that correct? Yeah, it appears to be, as I say, at least epidemiologically. Uh, I think the mechanism of the... Uh, I should also mention that 20% of prostate cancers are actually very aggressive. So this is a, a distinct minority of prostate cancers. I don't know that anyone has done much study of whether these aggressive prostate cancers, the subvariant, which which grow much more rapidly, actually are glucose-dependent. They may well be but I don't know that they've been studied this way, so I, I can't comment on those. They might be uh, FDG avid. The other thing, though, is that actually aggressive cancers, uh, very aggressive ones, not uncommonly develop um, a taste for um, not glucose or not just glucose, but also uh, an abundant amino acid that circulates in the blood called glutamine. For cancers that are dependent on glutamine more than glucose, they might have even bypass, they can be aggressive, and they may be glutamine dependent, so they may not show up on a PET scan, and they also may not be responsive to a low-carbohydrate diet. So there are other subtleties here that have to be explored before knowing exactly what to do in these kinds of situations. Well, I'm, I'm guessing potentially restricting glutamine might have kind of impact there. I, I guess there's no studies being done on that. That's hard. It's hard to do that because glutamine is, um, is synthesized by the body, and um, it just comes out of ordinary metabolism. Glutamine and glutamate are products of protein metabolism. Glutamine can actually be synthesized. Glutamate can be synthesized from alpha-ketoglutarate, which is a product of ordinary metabolism. So it can actually be synthesized and is, and then uh, circulates in the bloodstream in high concentrations. And uh, you can't really restrict glutamine in the diet and expect glutamine to go away. It won't happen. I think there are approaches that are trying to figure out how to limit glutamine in the blood, but I'm not sure how successful they are. It, uh, it seems to be an important metabolite and substrate for a lot of uh, a lot of different mechanisms. It's actually used by the brain uh, indirectly, at least. And uh, so there really are glutamine restriction. Uh, I think is uh, something still for the future. In summary, out of everything you've been saying, that the fasting approach or the low carbohydrate approach is, in your view, only applicable to some types of cancers and, and typically the most aggressive ones. Yes. I would agree with that. The other thing I should mention is that the fact that there are plausible mechanisms where cancers could be inhibited by a low-carbohydrate diet, and the cancers of the types that we've been discussing, doesn't guarantee 
that it would be inhibited. And I should also mention about a PET scan, that a PET scan, and the way we used it in our clinical, our, our pilot study in 2012, 10 patients, was that the PET scan indicates that we can at least identify a cancer that is glucose-dependent. We can do that on a PET scan. So those, from the perspective of our hypothesis, are carbohydrate, or at least uh, at least have the potential to be carbohydrate restriction sensitive. It doesn't guarantee it, because we don't actually know what which cancers will have the appropriate you know, characteristics and qualities. Maybe not all cancers will express uncoupling protein two or whatever other mechanism we were describing earlier. So we can't guarantee it. And in fact, if I would describe the hypothesis that I believe, it's that uh, see, <laughs> I actually have this on a slide in front of me because I like getting the word <laughs> the wording exactly right. That uh, large cohorts of individuals with cancer in the developed world do not experience sustained ketosis or other features common to the insulin-inhibited very low-carb state. We'd expect many cancers to express a range of plausible vulnerabilities and accidental adaptations to this unfamiliar metabolic microenvironment. So that's, I think, <laughs> that's the broadest statement that I uh, that I feel comfortable making. That we can't guarantee that an individual cancer is going to be responsive to this, even if, even if it has a positive PET scan, because we don't yet know all of the characteristics that are required. But uh, we do believe that those kinds of cancers are at least eligible for that possibility. Right. Well, so it sounds like it, at the moment, it's there's nothing really concrete on this, but we think there's a higher probability of some types of cancers. So that the most likely cancers to respond to this would be, which ones are, tend to be more glucose dependent? The ones that show up on PET scans would be the ones that would have eligibility. So I, uh, we actually treated in our 10 patient study uh, a range of patients, and um, there were uh, several with uh, lung cancers, a couple with lung cancers. There were several with breast. There were several with colorectal. There were a couple with esophageal. So those were the ones that we actually treated. This was a very small study, so it's a little hard to generalize from them. But in addition, as I say, the ones that are associated with hyperinsulinemia and hyperglycemia uh, could also be eligible. I would say endometrial, you know, uterine cancers, uh, perhaps pancreatic cancers, and others have actually uh, begun studying that as well. Possibly kidney cancers and maybe gallbladder cancers as well. So these are the ones that I would uh, consider to be uh, at least potentially eligible for this, depending on what else we learn. Great, great. Particularly in those cases, if I had cancer, I'd probably want to get a PET scan to see if it lights up. I don't know if you have an index there or is it just it's just something visual you use? Do you have any kind of index you use with PET scans just to, to understand the severity, like how much it is lit up? Yeah, there are ways of quantitating PET scans and um, the uptake, you can eyeball the uptake, which is often done for purposes of saying whether there's the cancer has spread to a location or not, if you have a primary. But if you have a, um, I like using the solitary pulmonary nodule because so many of them are benign and Others are also malignant. And so uh, people have attempted to develop quantitation and there are a variety of different ways. One of the common ones is called the standardized uptake value. And you compare the uptake there essentially to the average uptake in the whole body. And a, a value has, has been assigned by a number of uh, investigators as a cutoff that can be useful. And so an, an SUV of 2.5 two and a half times the average value in the body um, has been assigned as being uh, a cutoff for cancers. Now, this, all these cutoff values 
have overlaps and some of them turn out to be benign. But the rate of uh, the, the frequency it, it tends to be, to be much higher. And the higher the SUV, uh, the higher uh, the likelihood for cancer. The reason that there, there can be uncertainty in this is that the uptake of fluorodeoxyglucose can also be seen in inflammatory tissues. And inflammatory situations, for example, even in pneumonia, you can see pneumonias take up FDG. Uh, you can see benign granulomas take up FDG, although that they usually take up less. But in fact, you can get false positives. Oh, so could this be any type of inflammation in the body, basically where white blood cells are active? Yes. And there's a lot of inflammatory conditions in the gut these days. Is that something that would potentially influence it? Yes, that you, you do, in fact. However, there are also patterns of uptake. So the thing is inflammatory conditions in the, uh, in the intestines, in the colon, for example, usually uh, there are patterns of uptake, and you'll actually see an outline of the colon with FDG uh, distributing itself throughout the colon and basically showing the shape of the colon. Whereas cancers usually have a site of origin and develop, uh, they can be somewhat irregular, but they, they generally have a, you know, a round or spherical uh, type of initiation and shape and, and come in clumps. <laughs> so there is usually quite a, a big difference between what you see you know, in the intestines from that as well. But these are, these are non-invasive diagnostic tests, which are absolutely marvelous because you know, things used to be much more invasive. Uh, but they do have false positives. Uh, you, know, you can get... Your goal in a non-invasive test is to be able to screen well and therefore uh, identify those, those patients who, who may have this, this condition. And, and uh, if it's negative, it can be extremely helpful because the patient doesn't have it. But if you do have it, you may still, have, in some cases, have to go on and do an invasive biopsy in order to determine what's actually there. So I guess just to be practical for anyone at home that might be being related to some cancer case or perhaps working with cancer patients. So if it does come up a positive PET scan, it's, it may be worth using a ketogenic diet, a low-carbohydrate diet, as one of the tools. Uh, it'd be just something to look more into. If you just confirm or like tell me that that's not correct. And then talk a little bit about your recharge trial where you were actually um, looking at this. Sure. Okay. Um, I think that it's hard to generalize. I, I have spoken. Patients have found uh, me on internet and so forth and have called me and uh, discussed their particular cancer situation. And um, I don't consider myself explicitly an advocate for this simply because uh, a 10-patient study, which I'll talk about in a minute, our recharge trial, a very small study, and it's, it's pretty hard to generalize from a study of 10 patients. But um, it's not appropriate to, to make a scientific conclusion when generally the standard of evidence is that you have to do randomized, large randomized controlled trials. However, that would be the direction I'd like to go to be able to find out you know, more information. And also the fact that it certainly is uncertain whether this works in, in, in all, all patients with PET-positive cancers. But I can talk a little bit about the recharge trial, as preliminary as it is. And what we did was we studied 10 patients with advanced cancers which is to say they all had PET-positive studies and they all had failed several rounds of chemotherapy and were still progressing. So they had had chemotherapy. They were therefore eligible for an experimental trial of a diet because nothing really was working anyway. And uh, these patients signed informed consent and they were told that we didn't know what the outcome was going to be, but we were going to put them on a 28-day trial diet of uh, uh, very low carbohydrate. And um, so the patients 
agreed to this. And uh, for 28 days, under nutritionist and dietitian guidance, they were taught to change their diet. They, they had a two- to three-day trial diet just to see if they hated it, to make sure that they would... If they didn't hate it, then they could go ahead. But we didn't want to have people who were clearly not going to be able to complete the diet. We wanted the patients... We limited it to 28 days because, uh, you know, changing diet is hard for anybody. It's not easy. However, just about anyone can stay on a diet for a month. So we figured that this would give all the patients a chance to succeed. And principally, the first goal we had to have was safety and feasibility. Was this actually safe? There wasn't really a lot of reason to believe that it wasn't safe, but uh, you still have to try that out uh, before you can do anything else. And um, it was. There were no unsafe uh, adverse uh, effects. Uh, the worst effects that sometimes are reported in this that we, that we did see were patients had, some patients had some reversible constipation, as I say reversible, and reversible fatigue within a couple of weeks. And that's generally the worst that happened. So uh, the patients were able to stay on the diet. Half the patients stopped a little short of 28 days, like 26 or 27 days. We considered that really a successful completion. They didn't stop because of the diet. Uh, they stopped because these were patients with advanced cancers who had planned before they had heard about this trial to go on vacation. They had bought tickets and thought this might be the last vacation they would be taking. So we weren't going to interfere with that, and, they, uh, and we, we got the PET scan two days earlier than we had expected, and they then left the next day for vacation. So really, everyone completed the trial without any adverse effects. Now, what we did see was that, and we measured uh, ketosis as the, the standard for how, how um, compliant they were. Uh, patients would report their food intake, and they would tell us what they ate, and the dietitians would record that. Food recall can be inaccurate. The, the most reliable way we could determine whether they were on a ketogenic, low-carb diet would be to measure ketone bodies in the blood. And we did find that all of the patients were ketotic. Uh, in fact, all of them became ketotic, at, and we measured this weekly for four weeks, a baseline and then four weeks. The patients became ketotic really by the end of the first week. So we know that they were... Be, they were ketotic for the period of the uh, four-week trial. Were you measuring blood levels? Yes, this was uh, yes. These were blood levels. We felt that that was going to be a more accurate measure because urine levels can be influenced by hydration state. If you're very hydrated, you'll dilate dilute your urine. If you're dehydrated, you'll concentrate it. So this was more accurate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We we discussed this with uh, Jimmy Moore, who you know well as well. Oh yeah, in a previous episode. Oh yeah, that's right. And uh, he actually interviewed me one time as well. That's right. So the goal, as I say, was a 28-day diet. And what we did find was that one patient we actually had to exclude from analysis because it took us four years to recruit 10 patients. Uh, most patients are on chemo and they don't really have this opportunity. And we also didn't want patients who were too thin because that would have trouble getting past the investigational review board. These are thought of as weight loss diets and you don't want cancer patients to lose too much weight. And so we had to restrict our patients to patients who were normal weight or above. <laughs> now, to find that patients with advanced cancer who had not lost too much weight took a long time to get this group of patients together. It took four years to recruit them. There was a lot of time in that. So beggars can't be choosers. And we didn't notice that one of the patients, one patient had had advanced breast cancer with chest wall invasion, but she'd had it for 14 years. 
and this was different from all the other nine patients who had failed multiple chemotherapies. She had had this for 14 years and had never sought any treatment for it at all. She had no surgery, she had no radiation therapy, and she'd had no chemo. So in retrospect, we realized, oh my gosh, this patient is clearly much more, has much more indolent disease. Even though it's advanced, it's progressing so slowly, we would have to exclude this patient from analysis because in one month, she wouldn't show change. I mean, she was stable from that point of view. We couldn't show progression of disease in this patient on, in a one-month diet. And it turns out she wasn't very compliant with the diet anyway, and she showed very little change. So reality was we had to exclude this patient. So we really only evaluated nine patients. Anyway, getting to the, um, the gist of that, of the nine patients, the results on the face of it were really not terribly impressive. Uh, five patients showed, well, four patients showed stable disease. One patient showed a partial remission on the PET scans. We had a baseline PET scan to indicate the patients had glucose-dependent cancers, and we had a follow-up PET scan to monitor the change in the PET scan as an index of whether these patients responded in some way. But four patients had continued progressive disease. So on the face of it, this is really not, not that impressive. However, the interesting thing about the difference between these patients is that the patients who had the stable disease or partial remission had three times the levels of ketosis compared to those who didn't. So the fact was that whether this was an issue of compliance or metabolic effect or the, you know, whatever the metabolic effect was with the level of compliance they achieved, the reality was that the patients who showed the best responses were those who had the most ketosis. So that was also consistent with our hypothesis that the ketone bodies um, and low insulin levels and the effect of low insulin levels, which would be, include ketosis, would have some bearing on the outcome. So did the same thing show up? The, the higher the inhibition of insulin, the better the result? Yes, that's essentially what we're saying, that the more insulin was inhibited and its effects were really most uh, were best measured by measuring ketone bodies. Insulin itself varies so rapidly that unless you time it exclusively, <laughs> you know, the same way time after a meal and so forth, um, you have to be very careful. So we use ketone bodies as a more robust measure of the effects of insulin inhibition. So is that pretty concrete then, that there will always be an inverse correlation? Like that's been established very well in science. An inverse correlation between ketone bodies. Because as you say, like insulin can go up and down very quickly. So it's, it's kind of difficult to know where it is. But in scientific studies, it's been pretty well established that insulin is inverse to ketone bodies. So then it's okay to assume that. Right. But they, they act on different timescales. Insulin, you know, spikes very rapidly after a meal and ketone bodies gradually build up over a period of days after, after chronic low insulin levels. So uh, you can go out of ketosis fairly quickly, but not as quickly as you can uh, spike it. You can spike an insulin level pretty quickly and your ketone bodies will decrease over a period of, of hours. The, key, the insulin levels change rapidly over a period of minutes. It's a little bit different timescales, but yes, there is a general inverse relationship for chronic insulin levels and ketosis. The other thing I wanted to mention about this is that the patients who did show progressive disease also showed evidence of which we weren't really looking at. We wanted patients who didn't have coincident other diseases, particularly diabetes, because we, we didn't want to be treating two conditions at the same time. So we basically made sure that the patients were not diabetics and were not taking diabetic medications. However, in retrospect, we did notice that the patients who showed progressive disease had evidence of prediabetes. 
that these were patients who were the four heaviest. They actually were the four heaviest of the group of, of 10 patients. They also had a baseline, in, baseline glucose levels 100 and above. There was more evidence of prediabetes in this group than there was in the group that showed a response. And there were lower levels of ketosis. So overall, we don't know for a fact that this is the way to screen patients, whether this is actually a biomarker. I would suggest that it makes sense that in patients who have prediabetes, prediabetes is marked by high insulin levels. And it takes uh, quite some... So that in this group, uh, a low-carb diet didn't seem to have much benefit. In fact, it didn't have any benefit at all. They had progressive disease. Now, of course, the way you want to treat, at least the way I like to treat patients with prediabetes, is put them on a low-carb diet. But I think that that would take several months to, to improve their insulin sensitivity. And if they already have cancer, that's probably not what you want to do in this particular group. If they have cancer and they have prediabetes, you probably have to... Uh, treat the cancer as a separate entity. Right, because it's going to take a longer time to have the metabolic impact that you want. Right, and you don't want the cancer to be progressing during that time, so you know you probably have to you have to make your choices in this case in that case. So, from your study, remember like one thing you were doing was you were uh, in order to assess the better performers was you looking at the relative ketone change. That's right. And we actually we use relative ketosis interestingly rather than absolute. Now, uh, the absolute ketosis was not very different in the two groups. But um, I actually believe the relative ketosis is more important, mainly because, let's see if I can uh, describe that uh, succinctly. When you looked at the baseline ketosis, baseline ketosis, uh, baseline levels of ketone bodies, absolute values. So this is when you, before you start the low-carb diet? Fasting levels, right. There were some patients who had, I'll just use a, a value, who had like 0.04 millimolar. And then there were others who had 0.4 millimolar. <laughs> so that's a factor of 10. Now, the absolute levels of ketosis rose in most patients to about 1 millimolar. A patient that went from 0.4 to 1 went up by a factor of just 2.5. A patient that went from 0.04 to 1 went up by a factor of 25. So there is a much bigger change in the overall metabolism in, in the change of the metabolism in the patient that started at a lower value. I would propose, and this is what I, what I actually believe, is that the patients who were living with a baseline ketone body level of 0.4 were actually acclimating their cancers to a higher level of ketosis during the period of the cancer's growth, initiation, and development. And in fact, that these cancers may well be acclimated, in other words, adapted to, that they grew up in a level in which they were used to these levels. And so that you can't expect, or we'll put it this way, whereas I do believe that patient, that patients, that people who live in environments where they eat mostly meat and, uh, and fat during the year, let's just say Inuits, for example, that haven't been exposed to uh, McDonald's and, uh, and Laps living in northern Finland and live on reindeer meat all day long, that people who live under those conditions I would suggest, and I don't know what the evidence is exactly, that they will have lower incidences of cancer. However, <laughs> should a person under those circumstances develop cancer, you know you sure as heck would not put them on a low-carb diet because you know that they developed cancer already on a low-carb diet. So that's what I'm basically saying. If you have somebody who already is in a state of higher levels of ketone bodies and cancer develops in a person like that, 
then you certainly wouldn't expect that patient to be as responsive to a low-carb diet. It's interesting because there's a lot of things in biology, like hormetic signals, where like, if you think about the treatment of antibiotics, right, you, you basically have to pulse it. You have to pulse it and do it in one go. It has to be done effectively. If you get chronic antibiotics for a while, then it stops having its impact and you don't get the benefits and so on. So it's interesting that you identified this mechanism whereby it could be a lot more beneficial to, say, do something. I mean, I'm sure you're aware that uh, Dr. Seafeet recommends a five-day fast, which is a, is a more extreme version of what you did in your study and potentially may ha- be more be- beneficial because it is more extreme. As, as you said, and maybe there'll be a higher therapeutic value. Yeah, that's right. And Dr. Seyfried is one. Also, um, Walter Longo uh, in California has recommended a calorie restriction and fasting as well. And um, I think that those methods may have some other unique benefits that uh, carb restriction may not have. They, they also may not be as easy to implement, but I think that they're all in the ballpark and uh, there may be value for all of them. So one thing I did want to bring up is uh, when we were talking to Dr. Seafried, he mentioned he's using an index now, which is called the glucose ketone index. I don't know if you, you've spoken to him about that or come across it. It's simply glucose divided by ketone uh, millimolars. And he's been using that to look at his approach to metabolic therapy and see if it's effective. Just wondering if you could compare that to the relative ketones. Would that make sense for you or you, you haven't looked at this? I haven't done that. So I, I really don't feel competent to comment on it. I, I didn't do that. I actually uh, might want to go back and uh, and calculate that as well in these patients to see if uh, I can get those numbers and, and make some correlations, but I haven't actually done that yet. Yeah, it strikes me it just might be interesting because, as you said, some of the diabetic patients would have potentially higher glucose, right? So you might see uh, something similar there. Yes, that's right. Um, based on that's your... right. That was interesting. Great, great. There's a few things I wanted to bring up here in terms of the other tactics people might use which I don't know if you may not have any opinion on these, but there are other things that can change the levels of ketones in our body, right? So you can, you can use MCT oil or ketone esters, exogenous uh, ketones, basically, or a high-fat diet. My personal experience with these, for instance, is uh, I've been on a high-fat diet for a while, and uh, in my fasting insulin tests, my insulin is pretty low compared to the average, and I understand that that's pretty standard. So I was just wondering what you thought of these kind of approaches also, if you've seen anything that might say there'd be similar impact, because they're basically mimicking the uh, effects of a low-carbohydrate diet. Well, yeah, I actually don't, don't know what, what way a high-fat diet is distinguished from a low-carb diet. There, really, you know, there are three macronutrients, and basically a low-carb diet is a high-fat diet. I don't know if a high-fat diet necessarily is also a low-carb, but it must be lower in carb because you don't really make up the difference in protein. Right, you're right. The, the question is the protein. Right. That's right. the, so, the missing. As I say, I haven't tested the protein uh, values. We didn't restrict protein in our group. I think we could have. We were dealing with uh, patients who, as I say, had advanced cancers, and we were getting them as through referrals from their oncologists as volunteers, and we really didn't want to give them something too complicated to do. So we were just trying to. But uh, yes, the protein certainly uh, restriction might might have. Uh, had further benefit. But as far as inducing ketosis uh, with uh, medium-chain triglycerides, coconut oils and the like, ketone esters, I think these are interesting approaches. They can certainly possibly offer more convenience rather than going through a low-carb diet. And that, that I think has value. The other thing to note is that they don't actually mimic the full effects of a low-carb diet because they don't inhibit insulin. 
So there is that aspect of it. While there may be value, I'm not sure that they'll, they'll, they'll produce the full effect. Great, great. Thanks for the commentary. But the other thing I wanted to just bring up was metformin. I don't know if you've looked at all of that or you're... Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm aware that this is being used, at least in trials, as another potential uh, mimicker, and uh, it has its own value. I think what it does to me is it illustrates the value of low-carb diets because what it really does, uh, metformin, is it, it limits glucose and thereby insulin secretion. So it's fine. Uh, what it's, to me, its major mechanism is the same mechanism as a low-carb diet. It has some independent mechanisms. It seems to upregulate AMP kinase, which happens also to be done by low-carb diets. But um, so metformin may have some advantages. It's a drug. It's a, a very well-tolerated drug, but it's not a universally well-tolerated drug. I mean, there are some side effects that have been reported, not frequently, but some patients develop lactic acidosis, which can be very uh, very serious, and uh, some patients develop hypoglycemia. So I think uh, overall would be considered a very safe approach. It just has to be tested, <laughs> like everything else. Great, great. Thank you. I was wondering if you had any opinion on calorie deficit versus high intake of calories. I could be on a high-fat diet or a low-carbohydrate diet and still have a surplus of calories versus a deficit. Do you think that's anything that could be either affecting your results or something to look at? Yes, it is something definitely to look at. The calorie-restricted approach um, has been advocated well, it's just been advocated. I can't say exactly what the whether the mechanism is the same, overlapping, or, or somewhat different. But um, I can just say this, that in our study, we actually wanted patients to uh, not lose weight. We encouraged them to overeat. Overeat a low-carb diet, but to overeat. So to eat as many calories as they needed to sustain their weight. So the only comment I can make about this is that all the patients lost weight. <laughs> we did not intend for them to lose weight. We didn't. That was not our goal. We encouraged them. We would be weighing them weekly, and we tell them eat more, eat more. You know, uh, you're, you're making these shakes. Add more cream to it. Uh, add more oil to your to your foods. Put butter on everything. Well, anyway, whatever it is that we encourage them to do, all ten of them lost weight. They lost on average about four uh, percent of. Uh, their initial body weight. The interesting thing about that, I just suppose that uh, this is why these diets are effective as weight loss diets. Uh, possibly, no one actually knows exactly why they work, but I mean, you certainly can speculate some pretty plausible mechanisms. One is that ketosis may uh, inhibit appetite. Another is that you're inhibiting insulin, and insulin, as I say, under the influence of carbohydrate, makes you fat and keeps you fat. But the absence of insulin does the opposite. It releases lipids from your uh, from your fat cells and metabolizes them in the liver. So the fact is that low carb diets intrinsically may be weight loss diets. We believed in our study that it's possible to defeat this. That one, there is such a thing as overfeeding, and maybe if one is particularly conscious about this, one can do this. But the other interesting factor is that seven out of the ten patients were above a body mass index of 25, which is to say they were overweight. Only three of them were in the normal weight range between 20 and 25. And as it happens, the patients who lost the most weight were the heaviest. Frankly, they were delighted with their weight loss, you know, even though we were trying to maintain weight just for the principles of our study. The patients who were in the normal weight range, the 
two who were the higher two in the normal weight range. So the, 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 I should say the heaviest patients lost about 5 to 6% of their body weight. The patients who were in the normal weight range, the two heavier of, of them, 25 BMI and 23, lost about 3% of their body weight. And the patient who was 20 <laughs> lost no body weight at all. So what this tells us is something we all know also, which is that the closer we approach our ideal body weight, the harder it is to lose weight. I don't know whether you've observed that yourself, I don't, whether you have gained, lost, or stable in terms of your body weight, but I believe that high-fat diets do not necessarily cause weight loss, particularly in people who are approaching their ideal lean body weight. I've been on this diet for many years, so it just isn't an N equals one experiment. I think I lost a bit of weight when it first started, but ever since I've been really stable, ever since. And I don't, you know, I've never paid attention to the number of calories. Sometimes I'm sure I'm eating a lot of calories. And sometimes I'm, I'm not eating so many uh, for whatever it's worth. Oh, and I should also mention one other thing, which is that in our study, when we calculated what the calorie intake was on the basis, this is, of course, of the patient's self-reports, that all the patients reduced their calorie intake as well. Now, we didn't want them to, but the measured calorie intake on the basis of their self-reports was reduced, in fact, by about one-third. The other interesting thing, though, is that the stable disease effect and partial remission, those patients who showed stable disease versus partial remission had three times the ketosis. But the degree of weight loss in the two groups was the same. They both lost about 4%. So that, although there was weight loss in all the patients, weight loss did not appear to correlate, or calorie deficit didn't appear to correlate with the effects that we saw. That's a great point, then. I think the other point you've illustrated throughout talking about your studies is how difficult it is to set a good cancer study up, given the, the situation with the patients and you're trying to control for a lot of things. So as you say, it took you four years to recruit the patients for the last study. So I think it gives us a much better appreciation of how difficult it is to do these types of studies. Yeah, I think it, it is. The fact that physicians are trained to treat with drugs, and that's very understandable, you know, drugs generally work well. And in cancer, it's, uh, it would be naive to start off with the assumption that diet is going to be a uh, successful therapy. It has to be tested. And so, whereas there was some reluctance, there wasn't entirely. And many of the oncologists were very helpful and cooperative and referred patients when they were on a chemo holiday or you know, a chemo break. That's what was needed to get this study done. And also the, the fact that I didn't want patients who were too thin, as you say. But I think going forward, um, I think that uh, we can count on perhaps some additional support. And uh, we are actually aiming for human studies going forward as well. Uh, right now, as I say, we're also trying to couple diet with drugs and animal studies. So the combination, we hope, will, uh, will lead us somewhere. Yeah, great. So is it, is it the first time someone's been trying to couple uh, chemotherapy with a diet? Uh, or are there existing studies that you're basing your current work on? Coupling a low-carbohydrate diet with other therapies has been done. Uh, I know that Colin Champ and uh, Doug Spitz, I believe, have coupled low-carb diets with uh, radiation therapy. As far as coupling with, uh, with drugs, I'm not actually immediately aware that anyone has done that. I think that, that, that we're still, um, we may be the, uh, the ones who are looking at that right now. Great, great. Wrapping up a bit, uh, thanks so much for your time today. Where can we learn more about this subject? Are there other people you would look to to learn more about this? You know, perhaps people you work for or who are doing a lot of studies in this area. You, you mentioned uh, Victor Longo, of course, which I think was mentioned in, in Dr. Seafried's as well. 
And are or any are books or presentations on the subject that are good? I'm trying to think. Other presentations. I know that uh, some other people working in the area that I know have been doing good work. Um, uh, Dominic D'Agostino in Florida. Uh, I think he has a website, and um, it would be interesting to look at, at some of the work that he's done. A somewhat, I, I hope, accessible discussion of what we've talked about. I have a couple of guest uh, blog posts that I wrote. Uh, my colleague Richard Feynman has a generalized biochemistry and metabolism weblog, and um, he invited me to write some guest blog posts for his weblog. So I wrote two, one which is on the general hypothesis, which I didn't even discuss today. Uh, I mean, I discussed it in, in the broadest forms, but I, I didn't discuss the, uh, uh, some of the details. And the other one is more on the, on the clinical trial, on the recharge trial, so it gives more detail on that. And I think Colin Champ has an interesting uh, website as well, uh, Caveman Doctor. I think I'd, I'd look at that. These are other resources. I think I've mentioned most of those that I know. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. So we'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Thanks for those. Well, how about you? What are the best ways for people to connect with you? I mean, you mentioned the blog posts, uh, which we'll put in. Is there anything else? Have you got a website? Are you on Twitter? Is anywhere you're active where people could learn more about what you're up to? Um, let's see. The website that I have is, is my website at Albert Einstein. Uh, you can also, through the blog post that I mentioned, it gives other links to papers that I've written as well as to my website. So I think that the, probably the most uh, complete portal, you can look me up, I think, uh, just at Albert Einstein and find my website there, and that'll also link me to the dietary studies and the blog posts and, and the papers. They all connect to each other. <laughs> great, great, great. Put, we'll put that on the show notes. Something we spoke about just before the interview, your perspective is a little bit different to Dr. Thomas Seyfried that we've already had on the show. Could you, you briefly summarize where you think you might have a different opinion? Well, I just think that we really are in the same camp. I think that we both believe in metabolic therapy, as do the other people that I've mentioned. I think that uh, he believes that when he describes cancer as a metabolic disease, he believes that the fundamental problem is it starts as a metabolic disease in abnormal mitochondria. That may be true. The only thing that I think that I would, I would differ is that that abnormality in the mitochondria, I believe, is a genetic abnormality, even in the mitochondria, that you still have what's happening in the mitochondria is that, to me, the, the fundamental problem in cancer is actually a genetic mutation that leads the cells to increased proliferation and growth and unlimited growth and immortality and so forth. The source of these mutations, I believe, could certainly be in the mitochondria, but in fact, it's if it is, and that would make sense to me, it would be increased reactive oxygen species. And increased reactive oxygen species can cause mutations in the genetic portions of the mitochondria, and that would cause abnormal mitochondria, or it could cause mutations in the DNA of the cell. Uh, certainly hydrogen peroxide, the peroxide can, can migrate over distances and can migrate into the nucleus. So I actually believe that the fundamental problem that leads to the cancer may initiate in the mitochondria with reactive oxygen species, but nonetheless results in the fundamental change of cancer is in, is in a mutation. So I think that in a certain sense we're describing the same phenomenon, but uh, we have a different emphasis on which syllable we're, <laughs> which we're emphasizing. Right, potentially where it starts and where it finishes and, yeah, yeah. And, and so on. Great, great. Thanks for that clarification. Before you go, I just wanted to look at a bit of what you do per, on a personal level with uh, your body data. I was just wondering if you track any metrics at all like for your own health, biomarkers, or anything like that on a routine basis, maybe yearly or more so? When I started studying this in around 2003, and I got interested in it, by the way, through my friend and colleague, uh, Richard Feynman, he, 
he's been uh, he's a biochemist and um, he's been interested in this uh, principally from the point of view of the effects on metabolic syndrome, diabetes, uh, lipid disorders, and so forth. However, uh, I coming from the nuclear medicine background and uh, PET scanning and Warburg effect and hypoxic cells, immediately was attracted to the possibility of uh, involved, uh, that this may have some. Uh, affect uh, low-carb diets and inhibiting glycolysis, and as I mentioned earlier, through the uh, uncoupling protein 2, having a unique inhibitory effect on cancers while sparing normal cells. So uh, in 2003, when I got interested in this, and I decided that, I, you know, I never really had a weight problem, but I had gradually put on pounds, a few pounds over the years, and I have a small frame, so at about uh, five foot nine and 165 pounds, for me, that was carrying excess fat. So I figured, well, you know, uh, if I'm going to study this uh, in others, I might as well experience what it's like for myself, and maybe I'll even have some benefit in terms of uh, overall body composition. To make a long story short, I've been on a low-carb diet of various degrees of uh, strictness over the years. In some cases, I've been uh, ketogenic. I've been very strict. In other cases, I've just been low-carb, but, but not likely uh, ketogenic. I haven't been under 50 grams a day, I'm quite sure. But the short story is that over a period of now, what, 2003, really 2004, really about 11 to 12 years, I've lost 33 pounds. Sometimes it's been in fits and starts, but I'm very, very happy and comfortable with my weight right now. Um, I like myself at 132. I have a small frame. I um, mean, I feel that I'm, uh, for me, I am lean and fit, and uh, that's a good thing. There's that aspect of it. In terms of other biomarkers, uh, my, uh, the numbers that I like to look at in particular are those that have uh, risk profiles for, uh, well, my glucose and my hemoglobin A1C has dropped, but in addition, in my fasting uh, blood glucose. Well, so where did they kind of, if you remember, where did they start and where are you at now? And are you happy with the numbers now? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I think I've been stricter lately and more consistent, so I've only been monitoring them really. I don't think I've really been taking very close watch of them, but I think over the past uh, year or two, my blood glucose had actually been, a couple of years ago, had actually been at 100, and my hemoglobin A1C, I think one time was 100, and my hemoglobin A1C was around 5.7. No, this was, I'm sorry, this was only about one year ago. The hemoglobin A1C changes slowly, but in two successive measurements, and I'm about to come up with a third, it's dropped to 5.7 to 5.6, now to 5.5, and I'm expecting it'll continue to be going down because I'm doing this. And my, my fasting blood glucose is now about 94, so it's dropping, and um, I'm satisfied with that. I used to eat what uh, was recommended. I used to eat a uh, low-fat diet, which, of course, means a high-carb diet, and I think I suffered the consequences. But little by little, that, that has been reversing. From the point of view of my lipid profile, the things that I'm most uh, interested in are those that are uh, atherogenic, that contribute to risk, uh, risk of uh, cardiovascular disease. And uh, I think the current thinking, which makes some sense to me, is that it's not so much LDL, which is targeted by the cardiologist, because LDL is, is a mixed bag. Uh, Low-density lipoproteins really consist of two major fractions, and one of the light buoyant LDL, which is really not, not harmful, and the other is the small-dense LDL, which is. And what happens on a low-carb diet is you reverse the ratio. You reduce the amount of small-dense LDL. 
And a good measure of that, because it's hard to get that measurement directly, there are only a few labs in the world that actually measure small density LDL directly. You have to send away specialized testing for them. However, there's a good index of it, and it's the ratio of your triglycerides over your HDL. So that's a proxy? That's a proxy for small dense LDL, yeah. Oh, great. And so when, when I started, I guess when I first measured my triglycerides to small dense LDL, when I had been not very uh, compliant at all, my triglycerides at one point were uh, about 150, and my HDL was about 50, so the ratio was about 3. And since going on a low-carb diet, uh, my triglycerides fell in half to 74, and my HDL went from 50 to 75. So basically, uh, my ratio is now 1. That's pretty high. So uh, all the things went in the right direction. It's, I'm you know, very pleased that the HDL went up, which uh, without uh, any major increase in exercise, this is diet alone. And my triglycerides uh, fell in half. So that those are both just what you know. That's exactly what you would expect on a low carb diet, and and what you want. Great. Thanks for those. Uh, very useful, especially the triglycerides HDL uh, ratio, because it is difficult to get the. I guess you were talking about the LDR, uh, the NMR, uh, nuclear magnetic resonance. Yeah, we spoke about that in a previous episode. And then there's the LDLP to get the L, the number of particles. But as you say, like there's only a few specialized labs, so it's not as accessible. So it's great to know that there's a, a, a proxy to use also. Last question here. What would be your number one recommendation to someone trying to use some kind of data they're tracking, whether it's biomarkers or something else, to make better decisions about their own health? Yes. Well, I mean, it depends on what aspect of the health you're talking about. But I don't know if ketosis is necessary. And it, as I mentioned, any change of diet can be difficult to over the long term. I don't even know what it takes. Willpower is something that, uh, <laughs> what is it? <laughs> so it, it's, uh, it's hard to, to know how to, how to do that. And, and, and by and large, I mean, the reason I, I would say it's hard to change diet is people eat what they like. And uh, you want to eat what you like. And so changing your diet means you're, by definition, changing to something that you, you didn't prefer. So it, it seems as though there's a fundamental issue there. On the other hand, I think that if you have a weight issue that you're not happy with or your doctor reports blood lipid markers or glucose markers that you're not happy with and evidence of prediabetes or diabetes and you're on meds and so forth, let's not consider meds yet. Let's just talk about without being on meds because low-carb diets, if you can actually go on them and, and you're also on meds, you, you have to do that under supervision because might actually become hypoglycemic, and so you have to be careful about that. But without considering meds, if you just want to, say, improve your health in terms of obesity or aspects of metabolic syndrome, lipid disorders, blood glucose levels, prediabetes, without going on a strict low-carb diet, a ketogenic low-carb diet, it's not as hard, I, I think anyway, to reduce the quantity of carbohydrates that you eat. You can have a, a breakfast where you can cut out or cut in half the size of the desserts that you eat. You can cut in half the amount of mashed potatoes that you eat. You can eat one slice of bread instead of two, or you can not eat bread. Well, that, that sometimes is hard for people, but if you don't eat, if you eat the bread and don't eat the mashed potatoes, you've reduced the number, amount of carbs that you eat. So if you just start by reducing certain portions of carbohydrates, and I would, I actually found I'd, I still will have carbohydrates a little bit now. I sort of have modified uh, Atkins Plus, uh, you might call it, or <laughs> South Beach Plus. I have 
have a little ice cream at night. It's my treat. Overall, I still don't have about, I probably don't, I eat about maybe 60 grams of carbs a day. But I treat myself to a little bit of ice cream at night. I'll find out what that's done to my lipid profile, by the way. I don't know. <laughs> but I don't, I don't think it's going to have a major effect. I think that overall it's going to be still pretty good. So the idea of reducing the overall quantity of carbs, I think, is, is actually important. I think that when the average American diet, I don't know if the same is true in the UK, but probably that um, the overall consumption of carbs is three to 400 grams a day. And that's really quite a lot. And if that could be cut in half to 150, that would be uh, a big improvement. So I think that that would be lower stimulation of insulin secretion. Yeah, I think that, that that would be my principal recommendation in terms of health. Now, as far as exercise is concerned, exercise is also something that many people do, but can't stick to an exercise regime. And overall, I think that even if you look at, at the overall impact on insulin sensitivity and improving metabolic profile, there's no question that exercise helps. But it really comes a distant second to diet in terms of having a dramatic impact on insulin sensitivity and these other biomarkers of lipids and glucose and so forth. So that while you'll never hear me discourage anyone from wanting to do exercise, I think that if you want to have an immediate and more dramatic effect, the thing to do would be to reduce carbohydrates in the diet somehow. <laughs> and that's probably the best I can say at the present time because, as I say, I don't think anyone has a, a magic bullet as to how to help someone go on a diet. It's, uh, it's never easy, but if you can find a way to reduce carbohydrates, you're off to a start. And if you feel encouraged by the results that you see, you tend to continue it. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up because we're introducing changes here, new habits and so on. And as you say, it's like super difficult. I feel one of the things that helps people is making it clearer how helpful it can be in different areas of their life. Once you've heard it 10, 20 times from different people who are studying these things like yourself in different areas, I think it makes it easier for people just because of the repetition for the clarity in their heads. I think part of the problem is all of the mystery and the, the misunderstanding, especially in the media and the press. The more times you've heard five different stories, the less you feel like taking action against any one of them because you're just not sure, you're hesitant. So thank you for your time today because you know, it's certainly helping with these type of things. Thank you. I, uh, I, and I'm glad that you have uh, this program really to, to spread the word to interviewing people who are active in the field. To get more of the Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.